Welcome to Founder Views. My name is Costa. I'm your host and co-founder of Web for Realty, a SaaS company that I bootstrapped out of my parents' basement with no money and no tech experience into a fully remote company doing seven figures in ARR. I'm taking you through my SaaS journey in real time as I talk about business situations I'm going through, thinking about, or just find interesting. My purpose is not to give you the answers, but to spark something in your mind that can help improve your business along the way. In this episode, I'm speaking to Liam Martin, co-founder of Time Doctor, a company that helps remote teams stay focused, efficient, and productive. In eight years, Liam has helped bring Time Doctor to a comfortable seven figures in recurring revenue. They're a team of over 100 employees in 23 countries around the world. And most impressively, they've done this all while bootstrapped. Liam has also helped start the conference called Running Remote. It's a conference where remote companies can get together, learn, and collaborate. Next year will be its third year running, and it's going to be held in Austin, Texas in the U.S. Uh, Definitely worth checking that out. So in this episode, we're diving into quite a few topics, including how remote companies can improve their company culture, uh, tips for hiring remote, and we get into marketing at some length. We talk about why Facebook and social ads no longer work and what SaaS companies should better focus their attention and spend on. Uh, This was a really fun, uh, really informative chat. I was glad Liam and I were able to connect. So without further ado, here's my chat with Liam Martin. All right, Liam, thank you so much for joining me on the Founder Views podcast. Really appreciate it. Thanks for having me. Amazing. So uh, we were just talking a bit offline. I I ran into your your co-founder, Rob very briefly in Boston earlier this year at the uh, Growth Stacking Summit. Um, as, as I was saying, I think it was a bit of a funny interaction because, you know, he told me what he does, his company name, and I was like, oh, I, I've been using one of your main competitors for quite some time. So it was a it's kind of funny slash awkward moment. So I'm hoping this chat will sway me to, to make the switch perhaps. Oh, well, you know what? I, just to kind of touch on that, for me, I think that that's a short-sighted strategy or vision. So when I look at the amount of people that don't know about Time Doctor, which is the product that you're referring to, uh, which is time tracking for remote teams, if I look at the group that my competitors have uh, are currently using, or sorry, the, the amount of competitors that I have and like who is using my competitors versus people that want to use a product like Time Doctor, but don't actually uh, know about it yet. The group that doesn't know about it is about 99 times bigger than my competitors. So I very rarely, if ever, compare myself to competitors or even think about them strategically in the market. For me, the big kind of piece is looking at the customers that haven't really, that aren't using a product in our category, because that's the much bigger group that I want to go after. Makes sense. And that's a great way to look at it. Uh, before we get into that, why, why don't we start by just telling us a bit about you personally, like where you're from, your background story, and uh, how you got into Time Doctor. Sure. Human being on planet Earth. More specifically, I'm in Canada right now. And uh, we've been running Time Doctor for approximately eight years As I said before, it's a tool to be able to manage remote teams. So it analyzes all of the metrics connected to remote workers or on-premise workers, as we like to call it. And you can basically figure out deeper insights into what they're doing with their time. Uh, Started that business off of actually a previous business, which was an online tutoring company. And one of the big problems that I had in that tutoring company was I really didn't know what people were doing and where they were spending their time. So a student would come in and say, hey, John uh, worked with me and John said that he worked with me for 10 hours. I'm getting billed for 10 hours and I only want to, I only worked with him for five. So then I have to go back to John, the tutor and say, hey, did you work with a student for five hours or 10 hours? He'd say, of course, I worked for 10 and I'd end up having to refund the student for five hours and paying John the full 10. And this was kind of destroying the business. So Time Doctor basically completely solved that problem by very clearly analyzing how much work was done, number one. And then on top of that, how productive that work uh, was being done. So like, what are you doing with your time and how can you make your time more productive? 
Perfect. Thank you. And uh, how long has Time Doctor been around now? About eight years old, approximately. We started in uh, 2012. Okay, nice. Uh, so there's obviously a few apps in your space, as you know. What would you say makes Time Doctor different? And, and what would you say is your unique value prop? For us, it's really just analyzing how productively you're spending your time. So most other products on the market are what I would call monitoring products. So they just monitor what someone is doing. Think like, you know, 1984. When what we're doing is we're actually seeing how productive your time is being utilized. So as an example, right now, I'm doing a podcast with Costa as my task, and then I can analyze all of the different podcasts that I'm doing and figure out how efficiently I worked on those different podcasts, how they correlate with other podcasts, and then I can even correlate ROI to those particular podcasts and then figure out how to do it more efficiently. Um, Just as an example, I've done probably about 400 podcasts within the last two years, and we've gone from the podcasts costing me personally a couple hundred dollars per podcast to now the podcast costing me about $28, $30, not counting my time. So I've been able to very clearly identify how to make that process a lot more efficient using Time Doctor. 400 episodes. You're, you're putting me to shame here. Uh, well, just as the guest, not as the actual podcast person. No, I know. Still, still putting me to shame. Uh, so your, your team's fully remote, correct? We have about 100 employees in 32 different countries all over the world. Amazing. And you guys have have been remote from the get-go? Yeah. Uh, So we sell a product that serves remote teams. So it would be a little disingenuous for us to be an on-premise company. We truly do believe in eating our own dog food. Yeah, absolutely. Um, So 120 employees, you said? No, 100 employees in 32 different countries. Uh, Okay, got you. 100 employees. Uh, What would you say is the high-level distribution of your team in terms of like percent like development sales support in terms of spend or in terms of headcount headcount uh i would say most of our development is through europe uh most of our support is distributed equally throughout planet earth sales is mostly located in north america and um most of the marketing is probably Southeast Asia and Africa. Okay, nice. Uh, we're, we're also a, a fully remote team. Um, we've got about 20 employees in nine different countries. Um, mm-hmm. From my experience, and I know you, like culture is very important to you and something you speak about a lot. Um, again, especially being remote, you also help uh, organize a running remote conference, which uh, is really awesome. And I want to talk about that too. Uh, but about culture, uh, how do you guys define and maintain your company culture? You know, and I know it's not an easy answer, but I think that's so important in any company, but even more so for a remote teams. So uh, what are some things uh, you guys do over at Time Doctor for company culture? Well, we definitely haven't cracked this yet. Um, remote culture or building remote culture is a pretty interesting subject and everything connected to remote is so new. The space really didn't even exist five years ago, um, which is very exciting for us to see this phenomenon of remote work becoming now the kind of primary way that people work. But just kind of a few notes connected to remote culture. Whenever someone joins us, first off, what we do is we do a culture fit before we even look at their resume So are they the type of person that we would want working at the company? The secondary thing that we do is once someone is actually hired, we end up really communicating what the company stands for and what you're doing outside of just the check that you get on a biweekly basis. So um, what does the company stand for? We very clearly want to empower anyone, everyone on planet Earth to be able to work wherever they want, whenever they want. So that's why we would extend from a software company like Time Doctor to our enterprise product like staff.com and our conference like Running Remote. They all connect to that main mission statement, which is empowering everyone to work wherever they want, whenever they want. So we communicate all of those things to our team. When someone ends up joining us, they're actually sent that poster. They're sent all of our customer avatars and all of that information actually has to be in their office. 
uh, when they're working with us. So we just make that a core competency of everything that we do. And then we also reinforce that during meetings. So whenever we do a team retreat, we do one team retreat per year where everyone in the company flies into a particular location for the year. It's mostly just culture refocus at that point. That's awesome. Thanks so much for sharing that. Uh, curiosity, uh, when do you guys do your retreats usually? Usually in the summer. So usually June or July is when we'll do our retreats. And most of the time they're in Southeast Asia. But we've done some in Dubai. We've done some in um, in Miami. Uh, it really depends on where we want to go that year and what the different employees vote for. That's amazing. Um, Touching on a little bit of what you just said, like I recently had a couple of uh, mentoring calls where, where people have asked me about how I manage conflict amongst remote teams and uh, how to better get people integrated with, with your team um, remotely. Uh, and for me, at least, it all comes down to the root of those issues, and that's uh, hiring the right people so you can avoid those issues in the first place. So when I get asked those questions, uh, I don't really have a good answer other than you got to hire better and take hiring more seriously. Um, personally, I've never really had those issues with my with members of my team, um, so I couldn't really relate. Um, so, me personally, I have a, a pretty defined hiring process that I go through that has been working pretty well. I'd love to learn more about your team's hiring process. So you have a again a team of a hundred, so I can only imagine how important hiring and onboarding is for you. Can can you share some insights about? your process and what that looks like at Time Doctor? Sure. Uh, so I think what uh, I can definitely give you the process. However, I would be a little disingenuous in not stating the situation that we currently have in place. So past the 50 employee mark, we really started to build an HR and recruitment team. So we currently have four to six people in recruitment uh, and those are the people that generally manage this process. So I can tell you kind of the broad strokes, but if you don't have these people in place, I think you can't really do it to the level that we're doing it, but there's definitely, I guess, some things that you can take from it. Cause a lot of the times I've kind of told people how to do this and then they're just like, Oh, well, I don't have time for all that stuff. And Fair enough. Uh, and saying that though, are you able to talk about how you hired the first 50 then? Man, that was oh, really? a disaster. Was it a <laughs> uh, so that was honestly like luck. Uh, like I think probably in reality, it I, I would pull back to the uh, hire fast, fire fast mentality, which I think definitely works in the sub fifty range or the sub twenty range. So you need to be able to very quickly identify who's going to be a winner and who's going to be a loser inside of your organization. And above that point, then we invested a lot of time into understanding who was going to succeed inside of our organization before we ended up hiring them and investing significant resources into them. So that's kind of the differentiator between the before and the after. Um, in terms of just the general hiring process, we would generally just jump in. We'd like put out a spec. Uh, we use Breezy as our, as our job application portal so we'd put out a spec, we would get at minimum 100 applicants before we even started a shortlist. So if we didn't get 100 applicants, we would not continue, we would not process to the next step, which would be the shortlist. We'd shortlist down to 10 to 20 candidates. Then the manager goes in and interviews those candidates for um, the main job. So before that, we've also done an interview with interested candidates for culture fit. Once that culture fit is set, then we go to shortlisting for the manager. The manager identifies who is the best candidate. We move those forward in our HR app. And then it boils down to hiring between two to four candidates for short-term work. And during that time, we're doing very small tests, which we all make sure are paid. Uh, but then we'll go down to anywhere from a one-week engagement all the way up to a three-month engagement with more than one employee. And it's really important to have more than one because in a remote work environment, you can actually do that. And usually what we'll do is we'll say, okay, well, there's three people that have made it. You're going to work with us for the next month, and the three of you are going to do the same tasks. So what we're trying to do is very clearly identify 
are you good at doing these things is what your resume is saying, what you are in reality. Because sometimes someone has really got a fantastic resume, but then when you actually sit down and see them execute, it's not the same thing at all. So once we've gone through that process, we'll usually end up with one to two candidates that we end up uh, really liking. And then after three months, we have one single last meeting, which is the meeting of the manager, the HR manager that was responsible for the hire, and one of their coworkers. And that meeting is the, why should we not hire this person? And after that has said, it's kind of the um, speak now or forever hold your peace uh, part of the conversation. And then at that point forward, they get full benefits and they end up uh, joining us as a full-time worker at the company. I like that. That's a, uh, you know, it's funny. I still do the hiring um, at my company. Um, I have a, you know, not exactly the same, but a similar multi-step um, hiring process. And for us, uh, actually, are you, are you guys bootstrapped or have you guys? Yes. Been- yeah. So, I mean, me and Rob both had exits before we ended up working on Time Doctor, but um, I think venture capital is dumb. <laughs> Sorry. Maybe the, maybe you're venture backed and, and that you find that uh, really bad. But generally, when you look at the data, uh, venture backed companies are very rarely founder friendly. They're mostly um they're mostly VC friendly. So we try to stay away from. Yeah, no, I, I agree. My, my podcast subtitle is a, a bootstrapper's view on business and SaaS. So uh, we're, we're also fully bootstrapped. But uh, what I was getting at was, you know, I sort of, uh, I, I take hiring super seriously just because again, we are bootstrapped. We don't have the luxury of having infinite resources to, to you know, burn money and uh, make mistakes. And as you know, hiring is very time consuming, very costly. So it's important for me to, you know, measure twice or three times and, and cut once rather than mm-hmm. uh, repeating the process. So, um, yeah, it's, uh, it's interesting. Hiring is super important and more so in a remote team. So, um, yeah, the fact that you, you did that, uh, up to 50 employees and now sort of have, uh, I'd imagine a very defined, uh, hiring process with the HR unit in place is, uh, is pretty fascinating. Yeah. I think it's your highest, I mean, your highest cost is your people. Right. So trying to make that as efficient as humanly possible. And more specifically, we just recently looked at all of our retention data and we're really not happy with where it sits right now. Um, They talk about how remote companies are a lot more successful than their on-premise counterparts. And I would tend to agree, but our voluntary termination or our voluntary quit rate is, I think it was 7% last year. So, um, that's not very good. We need to really kind of work on that. Uh, I think industry average is 13%. So it's below that. But when you look at remote companies, I mean, it's two, 3%. At least that's what the initial data points are showing. So we really need to work on that to make it a lot lower than it is. Yeah, nice. Um, another challenge I find with managing a remote company is uh, holding each other and your team accountable uh, includes like myself, for example, you know, especially with smaller companies, people are constantly, you know, bringing forward new ideas and, and strategies and there's all this excitement and then things sort of fizzle off because, you know, that, that whole cycle starts again. Um, what are some things that you do and your team does to maintain that excitement, but more importantly, hold each other accountable, especially on like the higher management level, I, and again, speaking from a remote perspective. Well, one of the things that we do is everyone uses Time Doctor inside of the team and everyone else can see everyone else's data. So right now people know that I'm on this podcast with you if they were to look at our data right now. And for us, that just creates a very clear and open working environment where if you're not putting in your 40 hours, you can look at my Time Doctor and you can see, well, I put in 57 hours last week. So how about you get to work? So that's kind of one point that we do to be able to keep everyone accountable. Uh, We also have rock tasks, which are updated weekly. So what we'll usually do is a rock task per quarter. So mine is to be able to work on our Facebook ads, which up until recently have actually not been that successful. Um, They were a couple of years ago, but Facebook ad acquisition has just 
really been getting a lot more expensive and there are fewer and fewer people that are finding success with it. So my job is to be able to start to run Facebook ads below a $500 CAC. And uh, it's a big challenge, but I am updated on it every single week. So the COO of the company actually makes sure that everyone is focused on those particular goals, at least in the meeting that I'm sitting in, to be able to say, well, what did you do this week? Oh, well, I got four more creatives up. Okay, what was the, you know, what were the metrics connected to it? What were the engagement metrics? And then we'd look at that and then we'd say, what are we going to do next week? So the reason why it's called a rock task is because you're moving the rock forward. So you're doing something on building the business, not just actually keeping everything at the same level that it currently is right now. Nice. Uh, I like that. Um, I I did want to jump into marketing as well, but before that you mentioned, um, you know, meetings, uh, are you, you know, sort of a a hot topic you see nowadays, uh, you know, uh, time spent on meetings and some anti-meeting camps and pro-meeting, like which side are you on? Boy, I would say I'm kind of in the middle. Um, it's, it's difficult for me to kind of, uh, it's difficult for me to kind of say one way or the other, which one I'm on. I would say that we do not let people who don't control spend run meetings. So that's one thing that I'm really adamant about. So if you can't requisition a paperclip inside of the company, but yet you can bring 12 people into a meeting for an hour that are all being paid 30 to $40 an hour, uh, you just spent $4,000 on that meeting, which is ridiculous. So, or $400, 500, whatever the price is, it's way too expensive. So we're really adamant about where are we meeting? When are we meeting? Uh, what are we doing? What are the outcomes for that particular meeting and keeping everyone focused and on target with that said, uh, I think that initially I thought to myself, well, if you hire really good people, they're just going to do what you want them to do and that'll be fine. And I kind of am now going back on that Uh, as the organization has grown and gotten bigger. You really can't get to that level at this point without very clearly identifying when people are going to be meeting and what they're going to be doing and what are the next steps. I agree. That's a, that's a really good way to look at it. Uh, So do you guys do like the typical, like, you know, daily, weekly huddles or do you have any quarterly meetings that, you know, the whole team's on or, Yeah. So we meet weekly with everyone. So every single employee has their meets with their direct report at least once in a week. And then also the developers meet every day for like a 10 to 15 minute, um, short meeting. And then outside of that, we do monthly AMAs. And then we also do like larger meetings, interdepartmental meetings once a month or once every quarter. And then we do our huge team retreat uh, once a year. And we also do departmental kind of like team retreats. So customer support may actually just decide to fly out somewhere and work for two weeks together, really kind of heads down on, let's say, deploying a brand new piece of software inside of their technology stack or, um, training everyone on a new system or process as an example. Nice. That's awesome. Um, so you, uh, I do want to talk about, uh, marketing. So you had uh, marketing at time doctor, right? Yep. That's it. Okay. Um, okay. So you, you launched in 2012 and seven years, hundred employees like that. That's incredible growth. Um, do, do you guys share revenue numbers or customer or customer? No, account? we don't. So we have, um, we have a couple, like we're the two companies, staff.com and time doctor, both in the seven finger range, quite comfortably in that range. Um, I actually do, we started with running remote and we publish the P and L's, uh, for running remote, which I think is quite interesting. So everything down to the dollar. So I think we made last year a grand, I think we made 250,000 on last year's running remote. And I think we profited a grand total of like $12,000, <laughs> which, uh, really begs to show you that running remote is not something that we're doing for profits. It's just something that we're doing because we really like remote work, but the main businesses are both seven figure businesses. Okay. Got it. I want to talk about running remote in a little bit, but before that, um, 
just want to talk about marketing a little bit. So let's talk about some growth channels that you've found successful uh, as the head of marketing at Time Doctor. Uh, for example, for us, a lot of our growth over the years has come from uh, a lot of outbound efforts like email marketing and calling, which we found a lot of success in. And we're now looking at um, some different paid inbound channels as well. Uh, can you talk about some of you know your your growth channels and, and what has um, shown success for you? Sure. I think that, and it really depends on what type of product you're selling. So for, for you guys, for doing sales, what's the, what's the theoretical lifetime value of a customer? Uh, in terms of years or a dollar amount? I'd- dollars. Yeah, dollars. Uh, it, we're, we're more of like a B to C slash B. Our customers, the, the real individual real estate agents. So it's an individual, but at the same time, they're, they're, you know, they're on their own business. So it's in sort of like in between there. Uh, it's a okay. lower cost product as well. Uh, our LTV call it around two grand. Okay. So, I mean, I, uh, ended up getting off a great call with the, um, the woman in charge of Sydney customer customer success at Envision. And she actually ended up blowing my mind. So Envision is like a five-year-old company, 700 employees, all remote, and they are a unicorn, um, very fast growing, and they're remote. So we're trying to get as many of them as possible to come down to running remote next year. And when I look at user acquisition, they run a lot of their sales through, or a lot of their user acquisition happens through sales but they don't touch anybody below a 10,000 annual recurring revenue contract. So they don't even approach those people. So on the sales side, we have a relatively small sales team. I think we have about seven or eight people, but they don't touch anybody that pays below, I believe, $500 a month. So that's probably about 20% of our sales volume um, comes from the sales team. The bigger chunk just comes from inbound. So literally, it's just word of mouth. I would say, however, word of mouth is the result of marketing. Uh, so whenever someone says, oh, well, we just get referrals and it just happens, I mean, that's kind of a disingenuous answer because there was an initial source of marketing that begat all of those referrals. And product is obviously a magnifier towards that, but you need that seed marketing to start at the beginning. So we ended up really focusing on SEO. And that's been a major driver for us in terms of overall growth. We've been doing some paid advertising, but to be honest with you, I think the days of the golden age of advertising, at least on social media is over at this point. And uh, very few people are actually finding it profitable at scale to be able to do that. So you might be able to get a couple thousand dollars a month in on paid advertising, but you know the days of us spending a hundred, two hundred, three hundred thousand dollars a month as a SaaS business and making that ROI positive within the golden ratio is probably uh, finished. So to me, I go back to SEO again. Um, if you're thinking about a long-term business that's going to last for more than ten years, SEO is absolutely the best cost per dollar out of any other form of marketing, and it's the one that we're really committed to. It's a very interesting perspective. Um, so a couple of things there. Uh, let's talk about bootstrapped companies who might not have the runway to focus uh, exclusively on a long-term marketing strategy like SEO and who need revenue immediately, basically. Uh, what advice would you give to those folks? Uh, like, Do you think Facebook and social ads are still dead for those companies trying to earn revenue today? In terms of SaaS? Correct. Like, so in terms of user acquisition, I would probably say out of 20 SaaS business, out of 100 SaaS businesses that I've seen that try to do paid advertising, maybe five have real ROI now. Whereas 10 years ago, I'd probably say 50 out of 100. I think the opportunity is kind of passed at this point. And there are a few people that are really doing it well. Um, and I'm talking about people that have like a two month ROI. Uh, so I know of two instances in my mind, but they don't want me to talk about that because if anyone found out what they were actually doing, then you can very quickly and easily jump in and get that advantage inside of that market. 
and push them out of it. So the only people that I see that are succeeding right now are people that are doing stuff that I would call like pretty gray <laughs> in terms of, in terms of user acquisition or very rarely will it scale to like, let's say a million dollars a month, which is what you would really need to be able to build a big business. Um, most people are going to be quite successful at let's say a thousand dollars a month. So I kind of define that as like a retargeting funnel. Um, just as an example, we don't do any more outbound anymore on Facebook. We've shut that down completely and we only do retargeting at this point because we were pushed out of that market. We have, an, we have another platform that ends up, um, that literally has been taking, man, well, I don't want to name the platform specifically, but we were spending $20,000 a month on that platform and we've just shut down all spend because it's not making economic sense to us anymore because our competitors kind of jumped in and they're outspending us. So we're, we're not getting the same ROI that we were before. That's kind of like, I think that there's a whole bunch of people on the internet right now that are telling you that these things work. And I can tell you from experience the vast majority of the people that are selling, if they're, they're telling you that it works and that you have to buy something, uh, those people are trying to rip you off. So like, there's plenty of people, I, email me, uh, Liam at staff.com. I'll tell you <laughs> the truth and, uh, you don't have to pay me anything, uh, to be able to do that. So like, that's the reality is I've seen very few people. There's a lot of like, very easy solutions to problems, or at least people make this perception. It's marketed towards people as a very easy solution, when in reality, it is not a very easy solution, or it's not one that can scale. Yeah, it makes sense. So let's talk about SEO then. So that's your focus. Sure. Um, how often do you post content? And is all the content uh, on your company websites, blog? Yeah. So, I mean, there's a couple other things that we do that uh, I wouldn't really want the SEO gods to know about, but um, like we buy other assets that you don't even know about that advertise our product, but from a different perspective. And then we rank those web, web pages, um, which is really what most people are doing now in SEO. Uh, but on just on our direct blog, we do about 20 posts a month. And that's sent to the linking team. And the goal is to rank 10 out of those 20 posts within six months for top 10 in the SERPs. And we're pretty reliably doing that. I think we're around a 60% top 10 listing rate at this point. And it's just at that, it basically it's a land grab. Uh, so how much traffic can you get? How more often, how many posts can I launch? And then how many linkers can I have? that can develop those particular posts. Okay. Now who, a couple of questions in terms of posts themselves, uh, how long should an effective post be? Minimum 3000 words. Yeah. Minimum 3000 words and realistically anything that's below 5,000 words is probably not going to work out uh, to be able to rank for us ultra competitive term. So anything that has like a keyword difficulty of above, 30, I would probably make it a 5,000 word post and, um, dependent upon, you know, you really just have to run your numbers. So you have to know, number one, which keyword are you targeting? Have you optimized it for that particular keyword properly? And do you actually think you're going to be able to generate the amount of backlinks that you think you need to be able to rank top 10 in that particular, for that particular keyword? If you don't know that stuff going in, don't even bother starting because you're not going to succeed. You're going to kind of just write a whole bunch of posts and maybe you'll get lucky here or there, but realistically you're not going to have the numbers that you need to really um, turn it into a reliable engine. Got it. Makes sense. And do you guys have in-house uh, copywriters or do you outsource that? Or Yeah. So we have a writing team of about six, seven people. And then our linking team is probably 15 ish people. So altogether, a little bit more than 20 people outside of our like SEO strategist. So we have two of those and they're the ones that are choosing the keywords and then kind of directing this entire process. Okay. Um, linking team, like what exactly is a linking? What do they do? What's the, what's their responsibilities and objectives of the linking team? 
Sure. So all that they do is they identify a keyword. So let me kind of give you a more concrete example. So we rank number one for online collaboration tools. And if I put online collaboration tools into Google, uh, it looks like we have, or sorry, into Ahrefs. We use Ahrefs as our, as our main tool for, um, for SEO. We have about 50 referring domains. Uh, so that is, and that has a keyword difficulty of 48. Sorry, we have 75 referring domains. So what they did is they went out and identified everyone in the SERPs for the keyword online collaboration tools and all the connected keywords for online collaboration tools, like collaboration tools, <laughs> collaborative tools, collaborate online, all of these different keywords. And then we identify, let's say, the top 10 in the SERPs. And then we go in and grab those different URLs and we figure out everyone that linked to that particular URL. So maybe someone else, so cumulatively, let's say it's like 500 to 1,000 people. Then we load that into BuzzStream, which is our social CRM. And we send out an email like, hi, Costa, quick question, which by the way, out of everything else that we've targeted, that is continuously the highest open rate email that we've gotten. So it's, hi, Costa, quick question. Hi, Costa, this is Liam from Time Doctor. I saw that you linked to yabadabadoo.com with regards to online collaboration tools. We checked out the post. We think that we wrote something a lot better and we would love to add um, webforrealty.com to the end of our blog post. And we've actually already done it. Here it is. But we would love it if you could link to our post in exchange. Would love to chat with you more. Let me know if you have any questions. Oh, and by the way, we already pre-built the paragraph for you. Here it is. And that's basically what we do. We send out a thousand of those uh, every week. Nice. I, that's uh, I get those pretty often as well. Um, how how's the success? Like, what's the response rate on those emails? About so we started around five percent. We're now up to about fifteen to twenty percent of what we would define as success. So if someone's sending us back a link, but the major variables that affect success are number one. Did you actually do your homework and are you giving some something to, are you giving the, the SEO on the other end? Are you giving them something in the exchange? So most people just say, Hey Costa, love your website. Saw this post. Would love it if you could post to this. That doesn't work. What you need to do is, Hey Costa, saw your post. We liked it so much that we actually linked to it. And here it is. We just gave you a link. We would love it if you could give us a link back. That like 2x'd our success. And then the other one that really helps is making sure that you write posts that are 5,000 plus words that are written properly that you spend the proper amount of money on. Uh, I would say like a 5,000 word post for us costs between 500 to to $1,000 to write. So, and properly optimized and all that kind of stuff. So they're not cheap posts. Uh, they're ones that are well-written. And that also gave us a major boost in terms of our overall success for those campaigns. Wow, that's awesome. Thanks for sharing that. Great, uh, great practical advice. I think a lot of people find useful. Well, and that's the other thing that I think is really problematic is I just told you everything you possibly need to know about SEO right there. Like there's no other secret sauce outside of that. It just requires a grind. And if anyone tells you that there's a quote unquote secret uh, that wants to sell you something, run in the other direction. For sure. You know, I, I say this all the time and so many people just fall into this trap. Uh, you know, nowadays everyone wants to uh, get to the finish line without running the race. And like, you know, you don't realize that you know, to, to be successful in anything, you, you got to put in the work, the grind. And um, unfortunately we're in an age, I think now where most people just want to skip all that. But I guess uh, people like you and I, uh, that's why, we'll succeed because we understand what the grind means and the work you got to put in. Yep. Absolutely. Um, let's talk about, uh, running remote. So this is a conference. It's an annual conference, correct? Um, yes. So was this put together by yourself and time doctor or did you get involved with someone else or what's the backstory there? Well, so I actually ended up taking this on, um, 
like we, we came up with it. So yes, we invented it. And I would say it was created by me uh, and my co-founder Rob, but not necessarily by Time Doctor. So we could have called it like the Time Doctor Conference, but we felt like that was a little disingenuous. And we that's not really what we wanted to do because remote work is not just about tools like Time Doctor. It's actually very multifaceted. So we wanted to bring a lot of different people under the tent. So by calling it something completely separate, it gave us the opportunity to be able to speak to those other stakeholders. And uh, started it two years ago. Uh, we had about almost 500 people that came to the last one. The next one's going to be in Austin, actually, uh, which is very exciting. All the other ones have been in Bali. So uh, Americans can now come. And it's really just everything that you possibly need to know about building and scaling remote teams. So I have been to a lot of conferences that are connected to remote work. And they're not really about remote work. They're more about being a digital nomad. And I got mad props to the digital nomad people. Like they, if they want to, everything that they're doing is not necessarily bad, but it's just not what I was looking for. So I'm not looking for how to build an Amazon FBA site or how to travel hack. I'm more interested in, I've got hundred people right now and I need to hire another 50 people within the next six months. How do I do that? in the most efficient way possible. That's basically all that running remote is about. Okay, nice. So the, the one in uh, Austin is next year in, in April? Yes, it's actually probably going to move to early May, but uh, yeah, late April or early May. Okay, and that'll be the third conference? That's going to be the third one, yep. Okay, nice. That's awesome. I've heard of running remote for, for quite some time. I, never, I didn't realize it was sort of uh, hosted by Time Doctor. Yeah, so we don't, we wouldn't tell anybody that it's not, but we very mindfully created something that allowed for, as I said before, all different people to be able to come in, even if it's people like Costa that like to use some of our competitors. You guys are welcome. <laughs> I hope I still get the invite. There you go. Yeah, you very well may. Nice. Uh, all right. That's great. Um, I'll definitely uh, add some information there uh, to the show notes. Um, any prominent, I know it's still early, but prominent speakers lined up for Austin yet? Or Boy, um, we, have, we have one talk that I think is going to be mind-blowing. Um, and I can't release that information right now because if I did, then I think they, these two individuals would get quite angry at me. But um, it's definitely going to be, if you're interested in remote teams, they are the two and possibly three most influential people in remote work that are all going to be talking together, which I think it will be very exciting. And I think that's enough of a hint that if you're in the remote workspace right now, you'd probably be able to know who these people are. So uh, that will be very exciting. We have some other people that are great too that are coming in. Like we've got um, Nomadic Matt, who is kind of the archetypal digital nomad. He actually probably is the biggest digital nomad in the space. We've got the director of HR for Automatic, which is a remote team of approximately 3,000, and they're the company that's responsible for WordPress. Uh, we've got people like Dan Martell, who is a SaaS coach and uh, actually has a remote team himself. So lots of different people. We've had the CEOs of GitLab, of Buffer, a um, bunch of different companies that have come in and, and basically given us their time to be able to show other people how to build and scale their remote teams. That's awesome. Sounds uh, sounds exciting. I I can, might be able to guess who those individuals are, but uh, I guess we'll, we'll leave it at that. I'm not going to say. <laughs> That's pretty good enough. <clears throat> awesome. Um, actually, out of curiosity, I know you mentioned this, uh, and you know it's publicly disclosed uh, information. So, so to put on an event like uh, running remote, like what what are the expenses like? Sure, two hundred and uh, I think it was two hundred and fifty k for the last one, and we cleared thirteen thousand net profit off of it. Yeah, so I would say that conferences are not profitable. It would not be a business that I would say makes you money. Um, there are a couple 
conferences that are doing it well. And I think you really, the rule of thumb for conferences is the first one you lose money on the second one you break even on and the third one you make profit off of. So if that's the theory that applies to running remote, the first year we lost five grand the this last year we made 13k and maybe we'll make i don't know 30 or 40 the year after that but the um that's not really worth it for us it was just to make profit uh, for us we're more interested in just sort of interacting with those types of people uh, for us remote first companies are really kind of our tribe. We like hanging out with those people as much as possible. So this just kind of gave us an excuse to be able to hang out with those people more often. Yeah, that's amazing. Uh, the fact that it's in Austin uh, next year, is that going to be more expensive compared to Bali? Technically, no. Um, so the actual venue spaces are going to be cheaper, which is very surprising. So the And <clears throat> our ticket prices are probably a little bit more expensive than almost any conference in Southeast Asia and definitely any digital nomad conference. And we actually did that by design. So most digital nomad conferences cost like a hundred bucks, 150 bucks. And we, the top end pricing for us is a thousand dollars for a ticket. And we did that on purpose because we didn't want digital nomads coming. Uh, we only wanted business owners, not the people that work for the business owners. And that created a situation that allowed us to be able to grow the conference to the size it is right now. Um, I think that the other reason why a lot of digital nomad conferences don't grow is because they just don't have their economics right. And it's a, a lot of it is just kind of based off of volunteer work as opposed to actually having like a full staff. So we pay all of our staff full-time salaries for running remote. And, um, you know, if I were probably to tell you the truth, they're the ones that are profiting the most from this transaction. But it's something that, uh, as I said before, is a passion project for me and, and the other people that are involved. Yeah, that, that sounds incredible. Great, great job. Um, love what you guys are doing with, with the conference for sure. Um, hopefully, uh, I'll be able to, uh, to make it out in Austin. Yeah, so and it's great home. barbecue, regardless. <laughs> um, last topic I, I want to discuss, uh, just switching gears a little bit. Um, and you, you know, you can't talk SaaS without talking churn. So mm -hmm. I always ask other SaaS folks I speak to about churn. Um, what I've learned is that there's really no magic bullet or secret formula to combating churn. I mean, it's just going to be a nagging thing that's there, I believe, but, um, there are definitely a bunch of things that you can do that eventually accumulate, uh, in reducing churn. But what are some things, uh, you guys do at Time Doctor to help with churn? Sure. So uh, I would say the biggest thing that we do, so like, let me roll back. Churn is like 80% product, 20% human interaction, fundamentally. And uh, if anyone tells you anything different, I also think that they're, they're full of it. So it, we, by focusing on the 20% of human kind of interaction, uh, we do, we have a retention team inside of the company and they're linked to customer success, but they're actually, they have a different mandate. So we give them a certain amount of ARR and that's usually per rep about a million dollars in ARR and they're responsible for managing that churn. So we know what our average churn rate is. It's approximately 3%. Anything above 3%, they're in trouble. Anything below 3%, they're given a commission. Uh, there's a commissioned bonus structure inside of, um, inside of the way that they're paid. So that's basically what we do. We check in with them once a quarter, make sure that they're successful, uh, make sure that they are doing everything that they're supposed to be doing, just like a general customer success rep. But then on top of that, if we have any churn that's higher than, um, than, higher than $100 a month, we go through a process, which is why did they churn? Um, what actions did we take to be able to try to stop this churn from happening? And what was the result? So those two different combinations are the things that really reduce churn for us. We used to be around 5%, which is really danger zone for SMB SaaS. And we're now floating around 3%, which is uh, a lot more comfortable for us. Okay, and that's 3% uh, customer churn monthly. 
Correct. Yeah. Yeah, that's that's a solid uh, solid number. Um, scaling back a little bit, what you said, so eighty percent product, twenty percent human interaction. Um, so, like, what exactly do you mean by that? Like, the reasons for churn are eighty percent of the like product or like preventable churn. Well, yeah. So that's not even counting on voluntary versus involuntary churn. So if I were to look at your churn data, I would say how many people are quitting because they don't like Costa, they don't like the product, they don't like the customer service that they were getting, that's voluntary churn. Involuntary churn is, I had a heart attack and I have to shut down the business. I literally got that answer like a month ago. Uh, That's involuntary churn, meaning there's nothing you possibly could have done to have stopped that churn from occurring. So for us, that floats around... I'd say it's about 50, 50. I'd have to double check the numbers because we do it quarterly where we audit everybody, but um, it's about a 50, 50 shot. So out of that 3%, we can only actually affect one and a half percent out of that 3%. Okay. So, so that, that's, sorry, that 3% includes all the involuntary churn as well. Yeah. So when I give my churn number, I'm including my voluntary and involuntary churn. I'm not kind of just picking. No, good. I think otherwise it would sort of be cheap. Yeah. So involuntary or sorry, voluntary churn is I don't like your product and I don't, why doesn't your product integrate with Jira? That's a perfect example of something that we can save because customer support and success. Number one, if this person is over, let's say a thousand dollars a month and success hasn't identified that to them, that's a major problem for success because we do have a beautiful integration with Jira. But then more specifically, support would just come back and retention team would come back saying, well, actually, we do have an integration with Jira. Let me show you how it works. And um, let me see what else I can do to be able to try to help you out. That's that's a perfect example of how we would stop that problem. Um, There's other people that come back to us saying, hey... There was some downtime and I'm frustrated with how the software is working and uh, this is a big problem for me. And then we'd say, okay, well, what specifically is the issue? Well, there's this one bug that keeps popping up on Linux machines as an example. And then if we've identified the bug, we'll just say, okay, well, it looks like this is a problem for development. Why don't we just, um, why don't we just make those Linux seats free for the next month or two until we solve the problem? Those types of things, that's how you kind of save those customers and keep them, um, keep them from quitting. But fundamentally, if the product isn't good, right, so if the product keeps crashing all the time or the software isn't working properly, then people are going to quit regardless. So the best defense is actually having the product be good, uh, but then secondarily, you can do a couple things to kind of move stuff by about 20%. Nice. That's awesome. Thanks for sharing that. Um, Anything else that, that I haven't sort of asked that you wanted to, uh, to talk about? I... Uh, no, I mean, I feel, I feel that, uh, SAS is hard, right? It's just one of those things that like, it's sexy now, but when we started, no one, no one even re- kind of even knew what it was. Like, I don't think we even came up with a name until about 10 years ago for SAS. So it's this relatively new thing and everyone's kind of jumping into it right now. It is a fantastic business model. Uh, probably one of the best business models that currently exist right now for people that want to get into it, but don't think you can go from zero to, you know, 10 million ARR within a year that basically doesn't happen. Um, it, it requires a grind and there's lots of pieces that are involved in making sure that it happens. I agree. That that's very well said, and you're totally right. I mean, SaaS. Uh, personally, I can't imagine a, a more uh, a better business model. Um, at the same time, you know, it is sexy. It sounds sexy, but it is super tough. But one thing I do love about the industry is sort of the openness in it. Like things like this podcast, and like founders speaking to each other, and it's almost as if everyone's sort of trying to figure it out and help each other out uh, as we go, which is uh, pretty awesome to to be involved in i have an interesting theory about that which generally is you're absolutely right but the reason why i think everyone is so nice in SaaS and in tech startups in general is because it's the business model of disruption so we're taking previous business models that were quite stable and stability to make a profit in a stable market requires 
that you really kind of grind down on either people or your profit margins to be able to get success. In tech, however, you can jump into a market and you can say, oh, well, I just came up with this little app that cost me $100,000 to develop and you can, uh, you can pick up cabs with it instantly or just people that want to drive their cars around for free, right? <laughs> and you can go in and it costs half the amount of a cab and you can just do it. Um, so these disruption models are really profitable for the people that are disrupting them, but they're actually destroying what were very stable businesses that ran on for decades or industries. So I think everyone's really nice because it's just so easy to make profit inside of this market in comparison to like, let's say real estate, right? Um, the Trumps of the world are just not very nice people to interact with. And I think they have to not be very nice because it's just such a dog eat dog world. And in tech, it's just not the same thing. Mm, that, that, that's a, that's an interesting take on it. There's very nice people in tech. I mean, it's just like if I was a real estate agent and I had my one little secret method for eking out an extra one and a half percent profit, I probably wouldn't want to tell anybody about it. But in tech, I mean, that's every Tuesday. There's always these innovations that are happening. So everyone's very open about sharing that information. Yeah, that's uh, that's very true. Very interesting. Um, Let's leave it at that. I uh, do want to be mindful of your time. Um, I do end off each chat with what I call the top three. Are you ready? I'm all set. All right. Number one, your favorite business book. Zero to One by Peter Thiel. Nice. It's on my shelf uh, right behind me. Uh, number two, your favorite vacation spot. Bali. Ubud, Bali, more specifically. Nice. Uh, are you, um, sort of a side question, but are you married kids or, uh, I have a French Canadian girlfriend of the last six years, okay. which kind of makes me married, but not really. Nice. Nice. Uh, and, uh, finally, if you can go back, what do you wish your 20 year old self knew? Uh, 20, there's this thing called, or invest in Apple stock when, uh, Steve jobs comes back. And there's this thing called Bitcoin and buy as much of it as humanly possible the moment that it shows up. <laughs> I like that. So what's your uh, stance on Bitcoin then? Are you a pro Bitcoiner or what's the deal? No, I think it's, um, I think it's, uh, it's almost entirely speculative and I don't invest in things that are, that I don't understand and that fundamentally create value. So I'm not sure whether Bitcoin creates value. Uh, I have not seen it create value as of yet or crypto in general. Once that starts happening, I'm going to start investing in it, which I don't disbelieve will happen eventually, but I just don't think it's happening right now. It, it kind of boils back to the get rich quick kind of scheme. Uh, I'd rather get rich slowly. That's really the the kind of the way that I divide it is, do you want to get rich quick? There's a lot of risk involved in get rich quick. Uh, get rich slowly, relatively low risk. As long as you're able to put the time in and you're relatively intelligent, you will succeed. But it will take you decades to achieve what could happen in a few months with Bitcoin as an example. But the chances of you losing your shirt is much higher than you keeping it. I agree. I'm totally in alignment there. One thing I would add personally, I feel like it's such an, at the core, I think it's a very interesting, um, you know, the whole blockchain and, and cryptocurrencies and decentralization. It's such an interesting concept where it could be one of those things you look back on 20, 30, 40, 50 years from now and be like, shoot, why didn't I just put a little bit of money into Bitcoin? That was my, I bought 10 Bitcoin for uh, $5 of Bitcoin way back in the day. And I ended up losing actually five of them, which is super frustrating. So I had five left over, sold one at 20 grand or something like that. And I've still got those other four that I'm holding on to. So for me, it's one of those things that why didn't I buy 500 uh, back at that point? But why did I do a lot of things? You know, uh, why didn't I buy more Shopify stock at $17 a share and now it's $450. There's a whole bunch of those things that you can think back to, but fundamentally it's just like stick to 
get rich slowly and you'll generally succeed um, because for the successes that you find, there's at least 10 to 20 X of the things that you should have done or you, if you had done, you would have failed. Very true. Very well said as well. Um, all right, let, let's cap it at that. Um, if, if someone wants to reach out or find you, uh, where is the best place to do so? Timedoctor.com, uh, runningremote.com. And actually, I'll put a little honorable mention. I think one of the best forms of social media that hasn't been paid attention to is YouTube. So we started doing a whole bunch of videos on youtube.com slash runningremote. And it's all of our conference talks, plus me talking about everything connected to remote teams. If you're interested in chatting with me, that's the platform that I'd love to talk to you on. Awesome. I'll be sure to add that all in the show notes. Hey, everybody. This is Lee. Cool. Uh, I just pulled it up there. Uh, awesome. Liam, thanks so much. I really appreciate the time. I'd love to do this again sometime. Yeah. Thank you very much. All right. Have a good one. Thank you so much for listening. If you have any comments, questions, or suggestions, I would love to hear it. Be sure to check out founderviews.com for my latest posts and episodes on my journey with everything SaaS, business, and startups. Talk to you later. Peace.